This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to learn more and get 10% off your first month. I think that we have to learn more about the Puerto Ricans in the USA. Sometimes we forget about their needs. What are the living conditions of our population in the USA? From Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, Puerto Ricans and the spread of COVID-19. Since the start of the coronavirus outbreak, it's been reported that low-income, black, and brown communities have been hit hardest by the pandemic. On this show, we've covered how immigrants and Latinos are getting sick and dying at some of the highest rates in the country. As the crisis continues, so does the necessary reporting. A large-scale investigation released in June focused on the Puerto Rican diaspora here in the United States. The results are sobering. Detailed analysis found that Puerto Rican communities in the mainland live in parts of the country that also happen to be the most vulnerable for the spread of COVID-19. The Puerto Rico-based Centro de Periodismo Investigativo, or CPI, mapped out the Puerto Rican population in the U.S. and analyzed how that overlapped with the spread of COVID across the country. The investigation determined that Puerto Ricans in the U.S. live in counties that have the highest possibility of COVID infection and death. This piece included reporting from New York, New Jersey, and Florida. A four-person team contributed to the story, and two of those reporters join us today. Manesa Colón Almenas worked on data analysis and crunched the numbers for this piece. While Coral Murphy interviewed Puerto Ricans in the States, Manesa and Coral, thank you so much for your work and welcome to Latino USA. Thank you, Maria Hinojosa. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So, um, look, there have been a lot of stories that, in particular, Latino and Latina journalists, we've just kind of been really obsessing over when this pandemic has been developing. And I'm just wondering, at what point did you just say, hold on a second, there's a story about Puerto Ricans right here. Do you remember when that happened for the both of you? Manesa, let's start with you. This investigation, uh, we started after we published our first study last April. We identified that the passengers arriving in, in to the island, not in Puerto Rico, came from areas of greatest contagion by coronavirus, like New York, Florida, and New Jersey. Those states have the largest Puerto Rican population in United States. Therefore, we decided 
to analyze if the Puerto Ricans living in USA have been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. Coral, you're based um, here in, in the United States. You're based in New York. Vanessa is based in Puerto Rico. I'm wondering, because you ended up being the one who was doing the interviews here on the mainland, do you remember when you just went like, whoa, I'm seeing this right in front of my eyes. This is a story about Puerto Ricans. I wasn't surprised because as a person living in New York, I kind of got to see firsthand how most of the people that were outside were people who had to be because they were essential workers and Latinos. So when Manessa told me people from Puerto Rico in the U.S. are being mostly affected by COVID-19, it just didn't, it didn't surprise me. Not at all. I'm not Puerto Rican, but I have been hearing this story. Many Puerto Rican girlfriends, professional women, who just tell me, oh my God, this person died, and then this person died, and then this person died. And in fact, in your reporting, you tell the story of a man, his name is William Sanchez Vargas. He's 57 years old, and he manages four apartment buildings for the elderly or the disabled in the Bronx. How many people did he tell you have died from the four apartment buildings that he manages? In the buildings that he manages, around 16 people have died. He contracted the virus and he himself was extremely worried for himself and for his wife. He told me he didn't see his wife for about two weeks while he quarantined. And I just remember when I asked him about his experience, he started telling me how he was hallucinating that he felt extreme pain and that he thought he was going to die. And he told me that at that moment, he started to write his will. And he said, I didn't think it was my time to be doing this and to start doing this, but I felt it was going to be very real. It was going to be the outcome and I had to be prepared for the worst. So Willie is from the Bronx. Uh, the Bronx is a heavily Puerto Rican borough in New York City. And I'm wondering what made you decide to zero in on counties in New York City, in New Jersey, and in Florida in particular? And what makes those areas especially dangerous for Puerto Ricans? We decided to concentrate on the 594 counties because they have a higher Puerto Rican population. Our um, investigation found that where the Puerto Rican people are living, there is a high number or a high rate of contagions. It's very important to specify that it doesn't mean that the Puerto Rican people are more infected with the coronavirus, but their possibility of contagion increased because they live where there is a high rate of contagions and death. We also correlate the Puerto Rican population with the Social Vulnerability Index. And we found that vulnerability factors are very present. Urban poverty being considered a racial minority, limitations with the English, high unemployment. These factors increase the possibility of becoming infected from the virus. You know, there, there is a concept of just poverty, but then when you get more specific about different kinds of poverty, 
We're talking about here in terms of urban poverty and Puerto Ricans, and especially uh, poverty in high-density locations. And, you know, in many ways, the story of the pandemic is all about geography. You know, it can basically determine what your experience with this pandemic has been like. So I'm wondering, can you talk about this notion of urban poverty and geographic location, the spread of the virus, and how this coincides with the Puerto Rican community specifically? Urban poverty occurs mainly in spaces with more population, where people have less access to basic services. That's it. Many people live in overcrowding. It's so difficult to maintain the, the social distance because they're living together. They're living in the same houses. They're living maybe your uncle, your grandmother, your son, your sister, the son of your sister. You can't avoid the contact with the people. So that increased the possibility of contagion. Coral, I'm, I'm wondering, you began to see patterns of what was happening with these communities. Well, what were the patterns that you were seeing in terms of the failure of local governments and local institutions to really address this problem, to be prepared to deal with uh, the way the virus was attacking the Puerto Rican community in specific. One of the other people that I interviewed, um, her name was uh, Milagros Cancel, and she is a mother of three children. And she told me that it was just extremely hard for her to be in the area and It was also kind of saddening to her to see that there weren't enough efforts for people in the region to have PPE, face masks, hand sanitizer. She just didn't see that. She didn't see that type of help in her community. Milagros told you, Coral, that she's been having to do everything from home now, from school to virtual medical treatments to making sure that her kids don't get depressed. And when they tell her that they want to go back to their normal routines, now she has to explain that it's just not going to happen right now. So, Coral, did you see any things that you began to hear over and over again, particularly with Puerto Ricans confronting this virus? Yeah, I think this has to do with pre-existing conditions before COVID. This was something uh, someone told me, Fernando Laspina, he's from the South Bronx. He runs a community center there. And he was just telling me that a lot of people in the South Bronx were already going through problems that... I guess COVID just exacerbated. He mentioned, for example, the factor of unemployment. He said, in this community, a lot of people were already unemployed. And when COVID hit, those who did have office jobs just lost them. And the ones left working right now in this community are essential workers. People who were also uh, not very fluent in English would tell me that a lot of the resources that were being given out were in English. And they might have to do a little extra effort to look for resources in Spanish. And depending on where you live, they, they might not even exist. They were telling me how they were seeing difficulties in this in different sectors. For example, 
Milagros Cancel. She was telling me that although she can speak English, she was talking with other moms and they don't master English as well. So when classes went online, it was much harder for them to help their children with homework. All the classes were in English. And while they relied on the school and the teacher before, now it's just, you know, it's just a little harder for them to actually help their children. You also spoke to someone named Mike Reith Rivera, who lives in Newark, New Jersey, uh, who's a plumber originally from Ponce, Puerto Rico. He survived 20 days with COVID, um, and he had to go to the hospital. He describes it like a scene from a war movie, remembering now that he had to walk through the emergency room and seeing all of these people who were fighting for their lives. So, the emergency was like if you were in a movie of war, that you saw all the sick around you, and you were passing through them. I spent a day in that emergency, seeing all those people, you know, one of the things that we're actually it's happening in front of us is that, you know, we're we're documenting the story of the trauma. The Puerto Rican community um, on the mainland has been kind of hit hard, uh, impacted by things that have been happening on the island, you know, whether it's earthquakes, um, you know, or hurricanes. I'm just wondering, what have you seen in terms of this community taking yet again another hit, the Puerto Rican community, this time because of the coronavirus? When I interviewed Puerto Ricans here in New York, I empathize a lot, I guess, uh, for personal reasons, because I also immigrated from Puerto Rico just over a year ago. So just hearing over and over again how they were still recovering from the psychological trauma and the emotional baggage that they carry from the hurricane, from the earthquakes. We are also going through a really big economic crisis. And they come here and they were really hopeful. And then this pandemic hits. And another aspect, I guess, on, an, on the emotional side of it is the fact that they didn't feel, and a lot of people still don't feel that they've completely settled here. You know, in New York, it's just so hard to settle because it's such a big city and there's, you know, everything's constantly changing. With this pandemic, it was just a lot worse. All right, let me just ask this final question. The Puerto Rican community um, also is a very strong community. It's very united on the mainland and they have weathered so many challenges um, for so long when you think about what's going to help get Puerto Ricans through this particular moment of the pandemic and their community being so impacted, what do you think about? I don't want to use a cliche like resilient, but I think that Puerto Rican people knows the meaning of that word by heart. We know how to face adversity. We know how to be under pressure and it's so, so weird because when we are finished one problem, then we found another problem. But at this moment, I, I'm, I'm so esperanzada, no? I am so sure about our young people that the young people can change this.
Coral and Vanessa, thank you so much for speaking with me on Latino USA. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Gracias. This episode was produced by Alejandra Salazar and edited by Luis Treyes. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Sofia Palizaca, Janice Yamoka, Julieta Martinelli, Ginny Montalvo, and Alisa Escarce, with help from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie Lebeau, Julia Caruso, and Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholtz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our interns are Sofia Sanchez and Marie Mendoza. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. Stay safe. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by... The Annie E. Casey Foundation creates a brighter future for the nation's children by strengthening families, building greater economic opportunity, and transforming communities. W.K. Kellogg Foundation, a partner with communities where children come first. And funding for Latino USA's coverage of a culture of health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Black voters play a crucial role for any Democrat who seeks to win the White House. But some big divides amongst that block, and some serious ambivalence, could determine who is elected president this November. Listen now on the Code Switch podcast from NPR.